0: Turn again, if you will, to John chapter 12. Finally, we're going to finish this chapter this week. John chapter 12. We'll look at verses 44 to the end. The other night I was working to update a resume. Not my own, you understand. Sorry, you're stuck with me. Uh, Trisha's resume. We were working on it and anyway I had resumes on my mind. We'd been thinking about that and the next morning I came back and began to study again. And I opened one of my commentaries and there what to my wondering eyes should appear but this statement. These last verses, 44 to 50, contain what we can only call a resume of Christ's teaching. I thought about that a little bit and I thought, well, Yeah, that may be true. You see, if we were to write a resume for Christ, it's a preposterous idea, but just for the sake of uh, uh, illustration, if we were to write a resume for Christ, there would be three major things. We'd say he's held three great offices that qualify him for all glory and honor and everything. First of all, he has been the prophet among all prophets. As a prophet, he shows us what God is like. Secondly, he has been the great high priest. As a great high priest, he makes atonement for sin, and he's a mediator. He brings us, reconciles us to God. And thirdly, he's the king of kings. And as the king of kings, he subdues all things under his authority and rules over Christ, over God's kingdom. The prophet, the priest, the king. Those are not the three points of the sermon, by the way. That takes the whole Bible to unfold all of that. But in our text this morning, we do have one of those things, the first. Here is kind of a resume of what Jesus did as a prophet. Doesn't even talk about being a priest, that comes when he goes to the cross and all of that. And about being a king, that comes when he's exalted to the right hand of the Father and rules from then on. But here we have his teaching, what he did as a prophet. Here's a little summary. Now actually this is probably not a sermon Of Jesus, because we see in the verse before that Jesus had uh, gone away and hid himself. And here I think what we have doing is John kind of taking some excerpts of things and putting it together as kind of a summary statement or a resume, as the one, one writer said, of how Jesus taught what it is that he had to say in this prophetic ministry of showing God to us. Let me read it, verse 44. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. As for the person who hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him on the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Let's pray. Lord, I need your strength to preach this text again. And we all need wisdom to hear it. So help us, we pray, as we uh, sit at your feet to hear your word and to understand it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Three things that we should learn from this text. The first is this, that Jesus cares about your soul Jesus cares about your soul and one of the characteristic things about prophets was the passion with which they proclaimed God's truth John starts this little resume of Jesus teaching by showing that he too proclaimed God's truth with a prophet like passion when we see that passion of Jesus, we understand how much he cares for us. I'm speaking of that little phrase that begins verse 44. Then Jesus cried out. Actually, only one word in Greek. The little word "krodzo," But it's a very significant word for understanding of what's going on here. I did a little study of this word krodzo in, in what is probably... The best and most thorough and most authoritative dictionary of theological uh, uh, words ever written. It's it's a whole shelf on my uh, on in my study. Uh, it's, we call it Kittle after the after the uh, editor of it for short. Well, listen to what Kittle says about this word "krodzo" or "cry out." He says this is a word like "croak," like "croak." It's a KR sound plus a vowel plus a guttural, a guttural of those sounds you make way back in. Uh, in the back of your throat. Uh, the Hebrew is full of that. That's why they say you learn to speak Hebrew by listening to the camel spit. It's kind of the huh sounds, okay? This word is like croak. It suggests a rough or raucous sound. It's based on the croaking of the ravens. In other words, this is this it talks about a sound that's hard to ignore a sound that might get on your nerves, frankly. And it's used that way, this cry out. It's used, for example, of the, of the sound a donkey makes sometimes. that that kind of get to you. Or it's used of, of, of the crying out of a woman in the pain of childbirth. Or it's used in the Old Testament, the Greek Old Testament, when Joshua Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho, you know, and they marched around and then they cried out, a great shout. Now Kittle points out that For the Greeks and the Romans, they felt that this kind of crying out was barbarous, barbaric, and it was unworthy of the gods. And that just would not have any place for the gods to be so passionate. A lot of churches still feel that way. We want decorum at all costs. We must have decorum. But in Judaism, this word was particularly used of the proclamation of the prophets. So we read in Jewish writings, Isaiah cried out, and Jeremiah cried out and said. We even read, the Holy Spirit cries out through the prophets, saying. You see, it's a word that communicates prophetic passion. That's a fairly common word, cry out. You could use it lots of times, but John reserved it for only four times in his whole book. Other places, he uses some synonym. He reserves this word for four times, and every time he uses the word, he's communicating the same thing. The intricate mysteries of Jesus' person and work, and the urgency of us knowing who he is and what he's done. Every time he says someone cried out He's talking about Jesus, who he is, and what he's done, and how important it is that we understand it. Let me tell you the four times. First of all is in uh, John 1.15, John the baptizer. Cries out, he says. What does he say? This is he of whom I've said, the one coming after me surpasses me because he was before me. He cries out concerning the identity of Jesus. And then in John 7.28, Jesus himself cries out, I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true, and you don't know him. With a passion, he cries out concerning his identity. And then in John 7, 37, again, Jesus cries out, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, springs of living water will flow from within it. Crying out concerning his identity and the urgency of knowing him. And then this passage, Jesus cries out, When a man believes in me, he doesn't believe in me only, he believes in the one who sent me. When a man looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. Same theme who Jesus is, and the urgency of knowing him. You see, John wants us to understand here in this resume of Jesus' teaching that Jesus came with a prophetic passion, crying out to the world concerning his identity and the urgency of knowing him as he is. What a contrast to us. Because we often really don't care that much about such things, do we? We brush aside the condition of our hearts. Oh, well those things will take care of themselves. We're much too preoccupied to think about it now. We've got lots of important things to do. But you see, Jesus understands that in spite of all of our busyness, in spite of the high-tech, fast-paced, grab-all-the-success-you-can-while-you-can kind of world that we live in, in spite of all the distractions, we live in increasing moral darkness. And that's the reason he came. As a light, so that those who believe in him would not have to live in the darkness anymore, could see in the midst of the darkness. And there's an urgency about that. Someone has to cry out and say, Listen! Stop a minute. Turn around. What are you doing? So in the Old Testament, when God sent his prophets, they did extraordinary things. People thought they were crazy. And when Jesus came, trying to communicate how much he cares about our soul. He didn't come holding the chair in philosophy of some great university where he wrote esoteric tomes for the curiosity of the scholars. No. Came walking in the streets, preaching on the hillside, angry in the temple, showing a prophetic passion for our souls. It caused him to walk in our shoes. why he still sends preachers to stand up here and make fools of ourselves. To try to communicate with the same passion. Whether you care or not, he cares. He cares for your soul. But he doesn't just care. That would be great that he cares. He doesn't just care. second thing we find in our text is that Jesus reveals God to us. He shows us who God is then. Did you ever think about what would you know about God if you never had heard about Jesus? What would you know? How much would you know about God if you knew nothing about Jesus, if Jesus had never come? Of course, you don't have to wonder because Jesus has come and you can't escape the fact that you know something about God from him. But for much of the world, it's not an academic question. Millions and millions, billions of people on the world probably do not know Jesus at all, perhaps have never heard his name even one time. What could they know about God? Well, in Romans 1, God tells us that they do know something. They're not ignorant completely. But they can really only know two things. They can know that God is, and they can know that he's mighty powerful. That's it. There's something, and it's awesome. Supernatural power. That's what you can know just looking around. You can say, wow. There's some kind of power here that I don't understand. It's bigger than me. Now, that may not be a God of love that you know. It could be a tyrant. It it, it may not be necessarily some wise controller of the universe. It could be some force that's on vacation from his universe. In fact, it doesn't even have to be a person. It could just be some impersonal energy or something. You don't know. Apart from Jesus, all we could know is there's some supernatural... That's a frightening thing. People for whom that's the entire knowledge of God they have live in servile fear. Because maybe the supernatural thing is in this pulpit here. What might it do? It might break out against me. Maybe it's in the mountain there. Maybe I better bring offerings to it or what if it explodes and kills me? Without any moral law, people are on their own. It's the law of the jungle. There's no restraint of evil, so we're even afraid, people even afraid of each other because it's the law of the jungle. And death, what does death mean? It's a supernatural power, but is it good or is it evil? Is it personal or is it impersonal? Where is it? Is it in everything? Is it far off? Don't know. Jesus rightly characterizes that as darkness. Darkness. Living in darkness. Knowing that there's something there, you hear the sound in the night, but you don't know what it is. But Jesus came to show us who God is, what he's like. This has been his repeated claim. Indeed, as I read this passage, and I thought about it, I thought, how many times can he say this? We've been over this already, haven't we? In fact, I wonder, Jesus reveals God to us. Maybe that was the point of an earlier sermon. It's come up so many times, for this is what he does. For example, he says back in chapter 5, I'm working, and so my father's working. Or he says in another place, I and the Father are one. Or he says in another place, I'm in the Father, and the Father's in me. Or again, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Or in another place, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him." Wherever you look, you find Jesus claiming that he shows God to us. In fact, in his book, Basic Christianity, John Stott writes, So close was Jesus' identification with God that it was natural for him to equate man's attitude toward him, toward Jesus, with man's attitude toward God. So that to know Jesus was to know God. To see Jesus was to see God. To believe in Jesus was to believe in God. To receive Jesus was to receive God god to honor jesus was to honor god to hate jesus was to hate god as one writer said god stands behind jesus and that's exactly what we find in our text here for example in verse 44 if you believe in me you don't just believe in the in me you believe in the one who sent me if you see me you see the one who sent me and in verse 49 i don't speak of my own accord the father commands me what and how to speak And verse 50, whatever I say is just what the Father has said. In other words, Jesus says again and again and again and again, I came to show God to you. To reveal him is the proper theological word. But that's what it means. Reveal means re, means go back. Veal, short for veil to bring back the veil, the curtain, draw back the curtain so that you can see what you didn't see before. Jesus said, I've come to pull the curtain back and show you what God is like. You want to see God? Look here, I'll show you. See me, he says. Now you can know what God's like. Only through Jesus could we understand that God is both powerful and personal, that he's both the creator and the daily sustainer of the universe. That he's not only transcendent, far off, greater than his creation, but he's imminent, he's here, he's near in his creation. That he's not only holy and awesome in his holiness, he's loving and full of grace. He not only is the lawgiver, he's the father. He not only is the judge, he's become the savior. We only know all of that. Because Jesus has pulled back the curtain and says, I want to show God to you. These days, full disclosure is the law of the land. Every time that you go to get a mortgage or make a major purchase or invest some money or whatever, you're going to have to sign some full disclosure forms that will, where you have to be told plainly in language you can understand and fully, without anything hidden, what's going on here. That's good. That's good. Jesus, though. God was in, into full disclosure long before we ever thought of it. That's what he has done. The word of God, who was with God in the beginning, who was God from the beginning, has now become flesh and dwelt among us. He has become the prophet par excellence, the one who will show us fully and plainly what God is like. That's what God promised in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18, God promised Moses. You read it, he said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. If anyone does not listen to my words that that prophet speaks in my name, I myself will call him to account. That's just what God God has done when Jesus has come. Here we have his resume. Jesus has done the work of the great prophet. He has said again and again, You want to know God? I have come to reveal, to fully disclose God to you. Indeed, that's what the New Testament says as well. When we finish up the Psalms in in a couple of weeks, we're going to begin the book of Hebrews. Listen to how Hebrews begins. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken in the Son. The Son is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of his being. Pretty good revelation, isn't it? The prophets gave you a little sketch here and there, a little picture, a little word picture. But the Son is the full-blown thing, all the glory, the exact representation of God so that Jesus can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Before we leave this point morning, I challenge you, I encourage you to think carefully, what is it that has formed your view of God? If you're like so many, there are a variety of influences that have helped define God in your mind. Probably when you went to Sunday school sometime, you heard some things, that's had an impact. You've heard some sermons, that's had an impact. And you also read some things in a book here or there, and you saw a movie that talked about God, and that had an impact. And you read some little guidepost story once, and that had a big impact on you, and you remember that. And and then you've talked with your friends, and people people have told you things, and that all kind of adds to the little mosaic of what God's like in your mind. And then probably, without question, the biggest thing is that your view of God is probably, he's just like your daddy. That's what we grew up with. And so we all have this picture, this image of what God is like in our mind. It's a composite drawing from all these little bits and pieces, some true, some false, some noble, some silly. And we have this picture in our mind of what God is like. Sometimes that picture brings us great comfort. Sometimes it terrorizes us. But the truth is it doesn't matter because it's a God of our imagination. It's not the true God. The true God is the God who is, not what we conceive him to be. The true God is known only one way. Jesus reveals him to us. As he's prophesied in the Old Testament and as Jesus' revelation is recorded in the New Testament, we see God. So God can be known accurately not through all these little bits and pieces that we gather to put together the composite drawing, no. He can be known accurately only as we focus our attention on knowing Jesus. That's the only way. So you want to know God? What do you take time to consider? His Son? Who is the exact representation of His being? Do you make any effort to know Jesus? Do you submit your thinking to His truth? Do you come to Him and say, I understand, I know that as good as my picture may be, it's not perfect yet, You need to reform it again. You need to change the picture. Or do you just go on with whatever notion of God you picked up years ago, and that's good enough, close enough. You see, you will only know God when you know him, by looking at Jesus, you won't get to know Him watching television. You'll only get further confused. You won't get to know Him going to a basketball game. I love basketball games. If you know God, you may see His hand at work there. You don't get to know what He's like there, though. You won't get to know Him by working 12 or 14 or 16 hours a day, although it may make you very successful. You won't get to know him by being the nicest person, having the nicest friends in the world, and giving all sorts of attention to building those relationships, Though that's a wonderful thing to have. You will only know God when you fix your eyes, your mind, your heart on knowing Jesus, who is revealed in his word. And that takes time and effort and attention that we always are tempted to give to something else. But that's the only way. That's the reason he came, to be the prophet who shows God to us. Now some believe that, some don't. Which brings us to our last point. You can't escape Jesus' testimony. You cannot escape Jesus' testimony. No, prophets were not popular. People sometimes thought they were crazy, sometimes they did things that looked crazy. People sought to destroy them, sometimes did. So what about this prophet? This living Word of God who shows God to us? Well, people thought he was crazy too. And many people hated him and a few followed him. They decided to destroy him too. In fact, they thought they did a pretty good job. They hung him on a cross and let him suffer until he died, executed. People don't like prophets. Maybe you don't either. What happens if you don't believe in Jesus? What happens if you hear all of this and you walk away saying, that preacher is crazy. I don't buy it. Is lightning going to strike you as you walk out the door on your way to the car, you think? You're going to get hit by a truck when you pull onto the guy? You don't believe it? No. Probably not. What's going to happen if you hear all this and you say, what a bunch of bunk? walk off. What's going to happen? Nothing. Nothing. Life's going to go on like it did today, tomorrow. Your mama told you something bad was going to happen and probably won't. Well, that was a great source of distress to some of the early disciples. They approached a little town in Samaria. They went ahead and they said, the Messiah is coming. Jesus is coming. Let's get ready for him. Let's find a place. Let's get some food in place. They said, we don't want any part of him. No way. He's not welcome here. And went back to Jesus. They said, Jesus, man, it's time to call down fire from heaven on these people. Let's see some good old fashioned fire and brimstone on these people. Jesus said, nah, nah, we'll go somewhere else. He didn't do anything. Nothing happened to him. You see, it is deceitfully easy to reject, to ignore Jesus who comes to show God to us. You can ignore his his words and his actions, and you can laugh off his passion and think, boy, that emotionalism is kind of crazy. And probably not much is going to happen. Oh, you may feel a little uneasy about it sometimes and think, you know, I shouldn't be doing this. But your friends will pump you up and they'll say, hey, this is great, man, you don't have to worry with all that religious stuff. Isn't that a bunch of craziness? You get pumped up and you say, yeah, I I shouldn't buy into that. You may say, this boy, this is easy. In fact, you know what? It's almost too easy. It's almost scary that it's so easy to just walk away. Yeah, it is too easy. It's an illusion. It's an illusion imposed on you by the great deceiver who would be perfectly comfortable to have you sleeping in the dark rather than disturbed by the light. And so people go on snoozing and it's easy. But here it says that ultimately you can't get away from it. You can't escape in the long run. Short term, nothing's going to happen. But you cannot escape forever. That's what we read in verse 47 and 48. Let me read it again. As for the person who hears my words, but does not keep them, I'm going to rain fire and brimstone down and destroy them. I do not judge him. I didn't come to judge the world. I came to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I didn't speak of my own, I spoke what the Father said. See what Jesus is saying here? He said, I didn't come to judge. If I had come to judge, let me tell you, it would be a scorched earth. There would be nothing left standing by now. It wouldn't be one Samaritan village, it would be everything gone. I didn't come to judge. I came as a light into the darkness. I came to save, not to judge. And that's what he's doing. That's what he's still doing. So people reject him and they get away with it. And they mock and they say, you Christians are a bunch of fools. And they get away with it. It goes on. Because God is not in the business of destroying his enemies. In fact, his plan is so phenomenal that you can't even imagine. He says, here's my plan. I'm going to change my enemies and love them so much. I'm going to bring him to myself and make him my children. The disciples wanted him to bring down fire and brimstone on the little Samaritan village, and he said, No, 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 no. And a few months later, those disciples were up there saying in those Samaritan villages, This Jesus, he died on the cross, but God raised him up, and he's now inviting even you to be his children. And they came to Jesus. See, God's not destroying. He's saving. The light's going out. He's gathering people. He's gathering people. He doesn't ask us to go out and beat people over the head. Set in judgment. No, he says, go tell them good news. Good news. The light has come. You don't have to live in the darkness. You you don't have to be bound in bondage of sin forever. He's come to release you. Good news. To save, not judge. That's what God's doing these days. If you just wish he would rain down some fire on your enemies, I'm sorry, he just isn't doing that. It's not going to happen anytime today, I don't think. Oh, but don't think that judgment's never coming. It's coming someday. Just that that's not God's agenda now. God's agenda now is to not judge, to save. And when judgment comes, don't you think that those who've had the most opportunity would be the most guilty? That those who spurned his grace then would have to answer for that? Well, that's what this text says. Jesus says, I didn't come to judge, I came to save. But when you face judgment, what are you going to face? You're going to face just what I'm saying to you right now. Those words are going to come back to haunt you. You know, these days, it seems like we have an endless string of scandals going on. There are congressional investigations into everything. And it seems like in all of these congressional investigations there's a recurring theme that comes out. Maybe it's true in every court of law, I don't know, but that's where I've heard it is in the the congressional investigations. It always comes down to this, who knew what and when did they know it? Watergate was that way and the Iran-Contra thing was that way and the whole thing about nicotine and tobacco and all that says who knew what and when did they know it? Right? Our text suggests that Judgment Day, on Judgment Day, that same question is going to prevail. What did you know? And when did you learn that? Did anyone ever explain to you who Jesus was and what his claims on you are? Did you ever hear about his miraculous signs? Did you ever hear about his teaching? Did you ever hear that he raised Lazarus from the dead? Were you ever confronted with his identity as the Son of God? Did you ever hear that he's a great prophet that's come to show God to you? Did you ever hear that he cares for your soul? Did you ever hear that you're going to have to answer in judgment someday for what you have, what you have known of him? Did you ever hear that he came to bring light into the darkness to set you free and to warn you to not remain in the darkness? Did you ever hear him calling you away from the things of this world to come and follow him? Did you ever hear those things? then that's what you're responsible for. And this morning you've heard because I just told you. You cannot escape Jesus' testimony. But judgment has not yet fallen. I don't come bringing bad news today, I come bringing good news. Indeed God says that His goodness, His patience is designed to just give you time to turn around. No matter how much you might deserve judgment, he says, I've held off so that you would come and trust me and receive me and walk with me and be my disciple. Good news. But in in an ironic way, every time you hear that invitation, that good news and fail to respond to it, resist the instruction, turn a cold shoulder to Christ, your guilt increases. So that even this message, which I prepared, praying always that God would use it to turn your hearts, to know how much he cares and loves you and bring you to himself, even this message designed for those good purposes becomes a nail in your spiritual coffin someday if you reject it. You cannot escape Jesus' testimony. Last weekend, the movie Star Wars was re-released. I heard a record or an account reported that before this release last weekend, that the average person who had ever seen that movie had seen it seven times. And yet, on that first weekend out of this release... It grossed $22.7 million in a weekend. It's a phenomenal movie success. But that movie is more than a phenomenal entertainment success. That film and the others that go with it and the worldview it portrays has changed the definition of God for a generation of Americans. So that for many people who you might meet and see here and there and work with, God is kind of another name, perhaps an old-fashioned name for the force. I understand Taco Bell, in fact, has its Field of Force campaign wherein you can tear the little game piece off the cup and hold it to your forehead. And see whether you won or not. I guess if the force is with you, you win. Is that how that goes? I'm not certain I understand the theology of it. A deeply spiritual, religious piece of entertainment. Beautiful, wonderful piece of entertainment. Deeply religious point of view. A defining Theological statement for a lot of people, kids. Maybe the most religious training ever kids have had a lot of, a lot of kids have ever had. Hours and hours of, of a religious worldview. But this morning I tell you, it's all make-believe. The truth never changed. Jesus and only He, the great prophet. From God, the Word, the eternal Word of God, reveals God to us. Only He. And that God is not some detached, impersonal force. He is the personal God revealed in His Son, who cries out with passion so that we know He cares for us. For he knows that though this a day of grace, a day of good news, though today rebellion is not being crushed underfoot, there is coming a day of judgment, and you will not escape the testimony he has given. He speaks for God. He is God's prophetic word. And by that you will be judged. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. And Lord, even those of us who have sat in church every Sunday of our lives have to admit we don't know you very well yet. And even those of us who had the most godly fathers and some of the best teachers have to admit that we still have to have our views of you changed. And some of us, Lord, see you only as an angry tyrant in the sky, and we've never comprehended how great your grace is. Because we haven't looked at Jesus enough. And some of us, Lord, who think that you're just a God of love who would never punish anyone, have missed the point because we haven't looked at Jesus who embodies truth. Lord we need to know you better and we're so busy and our lives are full of other things and we're so easily rocked into complacency thinking that we know enough that we're tempted to not give attention to you but Lord I pray that you would give us the grace to desire more than we desire success more than we desire pleasure more than we desire comfort to desire you The desire to know you, to see you, to understand more, and to be made just like you. Do that in us, we ask. Amen.